You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Now, we're studying through the book of Colossians. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Christians in Colossae, was uh, writing to refute the creeping errors of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is not something like post-nasal drip, although it sounds like that, doesn't it? You've got a bad case of Gnosticism. Uh, I have to amputate. Uh, It does sound that way. However, the Gnostics were people who felt that uh, whatever you could know was bound to be true. The end result of that was this emphasis on just knowing things, uh, the end result was that their Christianity became very cluttered. Their brand of Christianity became very cluttered. And uh, they began to say that, uh, well, Christ is a deity, but he's just one of the deities. And there's a lot of ways to God. And as a matter of fact, they had the, sort of a ranking that began with God, and then it came down. Here was Christ, and here were angels. And they, I mean, they, they had all these... Uh, Uh, deities that they had picked up from uh, various other religious groups uh, in their culture. And so the Apostle Paul, when he heard about this through Epaphras, he he wrote back to them to explain that Christ is the incarnate God, that is God in the flesh, and that he is, as uh, we would say sometimes, God of very God, that is, he is all God in the flesh and that you don't have to go through some series of deities to get the Father, that when you come to Christ, you've come to the Father. As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so uh, we're now coming to a portion of Colossians, this letter to the Christians in Colossae, in which the Apostle Paul, once again, as we have seen him do in the first chapter, begins to emphasize the worth of Christ. Now, there are two... uh, two sections of this scripture that we're going to deal with uh, in the next two services. One, the worth of Christ tonight, and then Sunday morning, the work of Christ, the Lord willing. We'll be focusing our attention upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But tonight, the worth of Christ. So with your Bible in hand, Colossians chapter 2, stand with me, and let me read just two verses. These two verses, uh, one of them is a sentence. The next one is a part of a larger sentence. But uh, we're going to stop with verse 10, all right? Verse 9, In Him, the Apostle Paul says, that is, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, which is, or who is, the head of all principality and power. You'll notice in in verse 19 of chapter 1, we read these words, uh, which Paul is reiterating here. It pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, should all fullness dwell. Now we read in verse 9 here, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head and the principality, uh, head of all principality and power. Heavenly Father, as we in these next few moments open your word, as we ask you to speak to us through your word, We also surrender ourselves to the authority of that word. Father, I pray that everything that you bring into our heart in terms of conviction, 
will be something to which we respond in the affirmative. We'll say, yes, Lord, I agree with you. Yes, Lord, I will do that. Yes, Lord, I will obey you. Father, I pray that not one person here this evening would escape this auditorium without having totally surrendered to you. Father, as we think about the worth of our wonderful Lord Jesus, I pray that our hearts will once again be flooded with love and gratitude and praise. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And uh, while you're seated now, as always, let me ask you to keep your Bible open there in your hand or in your lap because we're going to be studying these two verses, 9 and 10, in these next few moments. Some of you may have heard me remark some years ago, I think it was, about a rather interesting thing that happened to me when I was in college. I was part of a youth mission team, and uh, we ended up in Canada. This was uh, the last two or three meetings that we, uh, we held were in, in Canada. We'd been up in Oregon and Washington and Idaho, and there we were in Calgary, Canada. Well, on a free day during this uh, crusade, I went out with uh, some of the others who were on our team. We went shopping. We knew we were about to come back. We had been gone from uh, our home since the 23rd of June, and here it was, August, and we were about to go home, and uh, we were praying that this 1960 Chevrolet that had 99,000 miles on it, it was my car, had 99,000 miles on it when we had left uh, drove through Oklahoma, headed out to Oregon and Washington. We've been driving all summer. We were just praying it would get us back home. And uh, so we were out shopping, and I found a little, uh, just a little art store. I know nothing about art. I mean, I, I uh, studied whatever you're supposed to study in college, you know, about that. But, I mean, as far as being an artist, I appreciate art, but I don't know anything about it. And uh, I especially didn't know anything about it as a junior in college. And so here we were in this art store, and, you know, I looked around, and most of what was for sale in that art store was not very expensive. Some of the pictures were, paintings were. But um, uh, I found one. It was a pastoral scene. If, if you've been over to our house, you've seen it hanging on the wall there. And I looked down. It had a price tag on it. It wasn't too bad. It was $25. And I thought, well, you know, my mother would like this. That's a beautiful scene. It probably remind her of farm, uh, you know, where she grew up. And and I like the colors, and it's in a pretty gold frame, which I didn't know much about frames either then, and uh, still don't. I uh, think I've been framed a few times, but I don't know anything about frames. And, and so I, you know, I just, I paid $25 and got the picture. And I wrapped it in one of the 10,000 sweaters we brought. We were, in, I think, the sweater capital of the, wool of the world, uh, probably the first great outlet mall and, uh, for sweaters. And so we bought all these sweaters, and I wrapped it up in one of these sweaters, and just stuck it in the trunk of the car. Now, you can imagine five college kids and all their belongings for an entire summer, and that painting, along with a lot of other stuff, just stuffed up in the trunk of the car. I mean, $25, that's not very much, is it? So I brought the painting back. It arrived here with a, with a hole punctured right in the middle of it, as a matter of fact, um, which my mother probably went out, and she had it repaired and painted over, and it, it really is pretty nice, and she hung it up in the living room. And um, when she passed away, well, then I fell heir to that painting because I gave it to her and I said, I want it back. And uh, they said, okay, you get, you get the painting. So we have had that painting, you know, and it's just sort of followed us around and we'd hang it here and there, never paid much attention to it and um, hung it on the wall of our, our house there and, uh, you know, right in the direct sunlight. I guess that's where paintings are supposed to be hung. And um, so there, it was hanging there. And um, one day for 
some reason, which I'll not go into, we had this man over at our house who was uh, appraising some, uh, uh, well, actually it was my wife's great aunt's, uh, she can't even remember how, anyway, we, it's a long story, but we had a lot of stuff we needed to get rid of. And, and we were trying to take care of some business for her father and mother. And so here we had all this, this stuff. It was just stuff here. And, um, you know, I wanted to get it out of the house. And so we asked this guy to come over. You know, what's all this stuff worth? And so he was going around. There are people who do that for a living. They, they you know, tell you what your stuff is worth. And so uh, he was telling us. And uh, as we were, you know, he came in the house to get something to drink. This stuff was out in the garage, is that kind of stuff. And um, so he came in the house. And I said, by the way, I said, you're, you know, you know about things like this. What, do you, what, what is this painting worth? And boy, he went over there and he got the painting. Ooh, he is real. You know, he said, yeah, well, it's got this gold leaf frame. And, and uh, he began to examine everything like that. So finally he wrote out an appraisal. He said, this, this painting is uh, approximately, what did he say, Gene, $2,500 or $3,500. Anyway, it was, uh, when he said it, I just gasped. I almost swallowed my tongue. I, I thought, you know, here we've just, you know, thrown it, go hang the painting up there, you know. And, and um, all of a sudden, you know, I, my kids walked down the hallway, said, hey, careful of the painting there. You know, watch out for that painting there, you know. And, uh, keep, those, keep those blinds, the light going the other way. There's a painting here, you know, that's worth a lot of money. All of a sudden, you know, I just begin to appreciate the, the worth of this, of this painting. I'm, I'm thinking about having a gallery built, the, the, my art collection of one can be put in that gallery when I die. Well, I, tonight, I want you to think with me for a few moments about the worth of Christ. You know, I know you appreciate the fact that he's the son of God, and I know that you agree with the fact that apart from him that we cannot have eternal life, but sometimes I think it would do us all good to meditate upon his worth, the worth of Christ. And so for the next few moments, I'm going to ask you to look at three statements, and all of them are gleaned from the two verses which we read in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, here in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Colossae. Now I'm going to make three statements. Here are the three statements. Number one, God is completely in Christ. I mean, all of God is completely in Christ. Statement number two, you are completed in him. And then statement number three, he is in complete control over all. And then I'll let you judge just how much you think the Son of the living God is worth as we think together about these three statements. All right, statement number one, and this was the Apostle Paul's direct refutation of the theology of the Gnostics. God is completely in Christ. All that God is, he is in Christ. When you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, there's none of God missing. Everything you ever want to know about God is in Christ. Everything you ever could know about God is in Christ. Now, I know that you know that we speak about the triune God. God is Father, God is Son. God is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people, when they're thinking about God, they, they uh, sometimes use Father and God. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a three in one. It's not a mathematical threeness or oneness, but it's God, three persons. 
one being, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but all that God is, He is in Christ. Look at verse 9. For in Him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness. Now, you need to know what this word fullness is because we're going to see it again. The word for fullness there means right up to the top, absolutely overflowing, no parts missing, nothing gone. All of the fullness in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that is, in a, in a body. Now, God is a spirit. Jesus himself said, God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But then Jesus also said this, I and the Father are one. He that has sent me has seen the Father. So all that God is, he is in bodily form in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him should all the fullness dwell, the Bible says. Now, let me try to help you understand this although it is to some extent a mystery which we will never understand this side of heaven. The, the, what I want to know about a computer is that it works when I want it to work, right? That's what I want to, I don't want to know all that some of you know about computers. I could care less. I just want to know that when I turn it on and all the right stuff comes up and it works and when I put a program in, it's going to work. When I want information out, it's going to work. I've had a sick computer recently and it's been a great tragedy in our family. Uh, I took it to the computer doctor, that literally, the computer doctor, that's Dean, who's in our church, Dean Puckett. And I said, Dean, I need my computer fixed. And he put my computer in intensive care. And um, that's something you don't ever want to do, put your computer in intensive care. And he brought it back to me and he said, well, I've, I've got it looking good, but it's still sick. Well, I don't care how your computer looks, if it's sick. He said, you're going to have to call the company that has this program because it's, he said, it's in there, but we just can't get it out of there. And so I've got, a, I've got a program lodged, stuck in my computer, hiding in my computer. And I chase around and try to get it, and it, I can't catch up with it. It can run faster than I can. And I, I, and I want that program to come up there when I turn the computer on. So I don't know a lot about computers. Computers mystify me. And I, I know that all of you know everything about, there is no about computers, but to me they're sort of a mystery. Now... I remember the first computer that I had in my office. And it was a big computer. It was not big like the real big computers, but it was a big computer compared to what I have now. And uh, so then I got this little laptop computer, and it's just a little small computer. But the interesting thing is when, when we got through taking everything off the big computer, everything that was in the big computer is now in the little computer. In fact, the guy that helped me do this, he said, I said, well, what about this? He said, it's in there. I said, well, yeah, but I had this. He said, it's in there. I said, but then there was this big thing. He said, it's all in there. I said, but this thing is bigger. And that's when he said, it doesn't make any difference. It's all right there. Everything. I said, yeah, but there was this certain system. It's in there. But I want to run. It's right in there. Don't you worry, preacher. It is all in there. Now, it's hard for me to imagine how something that big could be put into something that small. And it is. I checked. It's in there. Every bit of it's in there. And you know what else? I checked the other computer, and it's not in there. It's all in there. It's an amazing thing. Now, that is amazing to me, but it's all there. There's not anything that was in that computer that is not in this computer. 
with room to spare. Now, people who have what I would call a low view of the Lord Jesus Christ feel that, they can't explain this because it's not Scripture, they feel that when they're looking at Jesus, they're just looking at part of God. That's just the best God can do on earth. That's as, as much of God as I need to know about on earth. That's the way the Gnostics believe. They said, Jesus, he's godly. He is a deity. He's really something else, but he's not everything about God. There's more God, but, but Jesus is not all of that. I mean, Jesus is sort of subordinate. I mean, here's the Father. Isn't the Son subordinate to the Father? So, so Jesus is, is lower than the Father, as a matter of fact. The Apostle Paul refuted that by saying, listen, you know God? He is all in the Son. It's all in there. But in there's something, no, there's not anything about God that is that there is not in the Son. It pleased him, it pleased God that in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwells in a bodily form. So what are we saying here? You need to understand this. God is completely in Christ. Christ is not God Jr. You understand what I'm saying? He's not almost all that God is. He is everything God is in the flesh. So when anybody was dealing with Jesus, he was dealing with God. Jesus, as a matter of fact, said, you reject me, you've rejected the Father. I and the Father are one. That's why Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. And so God is completely in Christ in a bodily form, all right? Number two, you and I are completed in him. We don't become complete until the Lord Jesus Christ has done all of his work in us by faith. When we receive him as Savior, we're not completed until we receive Christ by faith as our Savior. Now, we see this in a physical illustration which the Bible talks about, and that is the illustration of marriage. Now, let me go back with you to the Garden of Eden and let's look at what happened in the Garden of Eden. God created man, Adam. And there he is, first man, only man on the face of the earth. There he is, Adam. And God creates all these other animals, everything. Adam begins to name them. You know, you, you can read Genesis, the first few chapters yourself. But there was something wrong. Something was not good about this. And so God designed, chose to provide for Adam a suitable companion. The word you see there in the authorized version, help meet, which is suitable companion, M a help meet, someone who would meet all the needs of this man. Now, God could have just gone over here and just, just created. Um, he could have just taken something else and just created a, a woman and impressed Adam with her, but that's not what God did, and he, there was a reason he didn't do this. How, what did God do? God caused, the Bible says, a sleep to come over Adam. He literally, the word is, he literally seized or yanked the rib from Adam. 
and out of the rib he fashioned woman. In fact, the, the name woman, Isha. Ish is the Hebrew for man. Isha, woman, drawn from or taken from man. And so he created, created woman. And when Adam saw her, he said, good. He said, that's good. And uh, then the Lord performed marriage there in the Garden of Eden. And Adam said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. God said, what I've joined together, no man is to tear asunder. Now, what was the picture there? The picture was this. By using a part of Adam's body to fashion his bride, that meant that Eve would never be complete without what? Without Adam. Eve would never be. She was a part of him. And separated from him, she would never be complete. Together, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, what God has joined together, no man is to tear asunder. Which you often hear at wedding ceremonies. Now, the Bible tells us Christ is the groom, the church is what? The bride. What does that mean? That means that we are completed when we enter into this covenant relationship illustrated by marriage. When we enter into this covenant relationship with Christ, then we are complete in Him. All that we are missing, all that we need, all that is a vacuum in our lives is fulfilled when we receive Christ as our Savior. Not only is God completely in Christ, we are completed in Christ. You see, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, he lost fellowship with God, joy in his work. But the one thing that happened to Adam that was worse than anything was that he died a spiritual death. He was alive physically, he was alive soulishly, but he was dead spiritually. This is what it means when the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Now, religion cannot resuscitate a man who is dead spiritually. That can only happen when a man is, as Jesus said, born again, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. And so when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you become for the first time in your existence on this earth an absolutely complete person, alive, body, soul, and spirit. You are completed in Christ. Now, notice what the Scripture says in verse 10. He says, and you are complete in Him. Now, the reason I wanted you a while ago to see this word for fullness, it pleased God that in Him should all the word, for, uh, should, should all the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily. The same word that is used there for fullness is the root for the word here that is used for complete. And you are complete. Absolutely everything you need, you are complete in Him. How much is Christ worth? Well, in the first place, He is completely God. God is completely in Him. How much is He worth? Well, in the second place, I will never be complete without Him. I will never be complete without Christ. We are completed in Him. How much is Christ worth? Well, let's look at this third statement. He is in complete control over all. Notice the next part of this verse. He says here, well, let's start with verse 9 again. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. Who is, or which is, 
the head of all principality and power. Now, there's, there's an interesting, there are two or three interesting things about this statement, but there's an especially interesting thing that you need to understand about this word head. We get our, our uh, we, we talk about uh, a person having encephalitis. It refers to an infection of the brain. Um, that word comes from this same Greek word that's used here, kephale or kephalos, which is their word for head. Now, that, that word comes from a, another word in the Greek language which refers to that which can be seized. And the head is referred to by that word because it is what can be most easily grasped about the body. That's how the name head, in the Greek language anyway, of the Bible, uh, came to be. It, it's that which can be most easily, that's the derivation of the origin, the progression of the word, that which can be most easily grasped about the body. Now, that's part of what is meant here. Christ in the flesh, now listen, is what we can, in a spiritual sense, most easily grasp about God. You come to talk to somebody about the Holy Spirit. For instance, Nicodemus said to Jesus, when Jesus said, man must be born of the flesh and the Spirit, he said, I don't understand spirit. And Jesus said, well, uh, that which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. Well, that, that, you know, what are you talking about? And Jesus said, well, you take the wind. The wind blows where it wills. How do you know there's wind? You can't see it. You don't know where it's come from. You don't know where it's going, but you hear the sound thereof. In other words, there's an evidence. How do you know there's a wind? Well, through the evidence of it. It's hard to understand the Holy Spirit. It's hard to understand God the Father. We think of earthly fathers, but God the Father, how, how is he my father? But Jesus in the flesh is that which is most easily grasped about God. But more importantly than that, and I think what Paul is emphasizing here is that he is the head that is in the sense of authority. He is the head in the sense of authority. He is the head of what? All what? Principality and all power. Now, the word principality here, archase, means first in line. We, we get our word archaeology, study of things way back, you know, who were earlier. And so, he is the head of all principality. We talk about uh, an arch angel or archangel, that which is overall is an arch. And so he says, that which is first, Christ is head of that. In position, that which is first, there's no position higher than Jesus. He's head of all the high positions of the universe. Not only that, he's head of all power. Um, this word is, a, is an interesting word. It's the word exousia, which means authority. Of all the powers in the world, there's no power greater than the power of Christ. What is he worth? He is head of all principalities. Any position, there's no position in the whole universe that's greater than Christ's position. He is head of all power. There's no power in all the universe that is more powerful than Christ. He is head of all principality, all power. I remember uh, going to a company one time and I was, having a, I was having trouble getting the guy that I was talking to to give me the answers that I was needing. And uh, finally, 
I did, you know, what I know. I said, well, you know, what is your name? You know, a lot of people, you know, when they have to give you their name, they start treating you a little bit differently. I said, what, what is your name? And he told me begrudgingly what his name is. I said, well, <clears throat> could I speak to your boss? And he said, uh, you want my boss? I said, I want your boss. He said, well, 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 he's right around the corner. I said, you mean he's your boss? He said, well, he's not my big boss, but he's my boss. I said, listen, I forget what his name was. I said, I called his name. I said, I want to talk to your big boss. I want to talk to the person in this corporation who, has got, who is the top banana, the big cheese, the head knocker, the pope of the slope, the main gorilla. I want to talk to the guy who wills all the power. I want to talk to the big boss. What's the worth of Christ? Let me just put it in simple terms. He's the big boss. There is nobody who has a position greater than his position. There is nobody who has any power greater than his power. Now, the Apostle Paul was dealing with these believers in Colossae who had come to think that Jesus was just sort of a junior power. And what is he saying? He's saying, let me tell you who Christ is. In the first place, God is complete in him in a bodily form. In the second place, you can't be complete without him. You are completed only when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Until then, if you die, you go to hell. In the third place, there is no position on this earth that is higher than him. There is no power on this earth that is greater than him. He is the big boss. What is Christ worth? That is what Christ is worth, the Apostle Paul is saying. Maybe I can explain with this illustration the importance, the value of Christ. Some years ago, there was a very famous artist over in, uh, in England whose paintings were widely acclaimed, in fact, all over the world, and uh, he died. He just up and died. And they were settling uh, his estate, and he had paintings that had hung in galleries all over the world, and he had an unbelievably large estate. I mean, he lived in this palatial mansion and had had all kinds of servants there. And so they brought in all the paintings from all across the world that he had painted. Many valued it at, at, uh, with unbelievable sums. They brought them all in, and they were going to have an estate sale. They were going to settle the estate of this man. And so, you know, there was furniture out on the lawn, and people were walking through the mansion, and then there was this gallery where all these paintings were. And it came time to settle the estate of this man. And uh, so the people were gathered, and they were sort of in, you know, in a hushed crowd and waiting for the, the bidding to begin. And this man was up who was, the, who was the trustee of the state, and there was a sort of an auctioneer there who was going to take care of auctioning everything off. And um, he said, we're going to begin the bidding with this painting. And they brought a painting in. They took the canvas off of the painting, and it was just, it was just a painting of a, of a young man. Very few people had ever even seen this painting. It was not all that great of a painting, if you want to know the truth. It wasn't anything like the landscapes and the other portraits that this man had done. It was just a painting of a young man. Uh, some of the people who were there knew uh, that that young man, as a matter of fact, was the son of this, this artist, his only son. As a matter of fact, his wife had died, and this young man was not a very bright young man. As a matter of fact, he had some actual physical and emotional problems which stemmed from some difficulties that he had had even at birth. He didn't get around very well. And, and early in his life, 
uh, after having been cared for by this artist and by his staff there early in his life, this young man had died. And so here was this painting of the sun. Nobody had ever seen it. Nobody had ever put any kind of valuation on it. The truth of the matter is, nobody really wanted it. It was sort of embarrassing, as a matter of fact. The auctioneer said, am I bid anything for this painting? And no, nobody answered because they had come for this landscape or for that portrait or for this other article, you know, on the man. Nobody really even thought about a picture of that son. And, and he weighed a little bit. He said, well, am I bid anything for this picture? Nobody said anything. And he asked again, is anybody going to bid on this picture? Nobody, nobody bid anything. Finally, from the back of the room, a man raised his hand and People turned around. He was dressed in the attire of a servant, and he had been the servant who, along with his artist, had taken care of that young man until his death. And so the servant made a bid, and the bid was just unbelievably small. I mean, it was just pocket change. He said, I, that's what I'll bid. And people were, you know, they were astounded, and they said, well, you know, we don't want that, that painting. And uh, the auctioneer said to the servant, is that your bid? He said, yes, it is. He said, is that your highest bid? He said, well, are there, are there any other bids? And the auctioneer said, I don't think anybody else is bidding anything on this picture. And he said, uh, he said well, then that's my bid. And the auctioneer said, uh, then the painting is sold. And then he took his gavel and he said, and the sale is over. And everybody stood there, sat there. He said, no, you're dismissed. And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, the sale is over. They said, no, we came out here to auction. We came out here to... He said, no, he said, the, the sale is over. Everything has been dispersed according to the will of the artist. And they said, what do you mean? He said, well, let me read to you from the will of the artist. He began to describe all that he had. And he said, the first thing I'd like for you to have auctioned off is a painting of my son, whom I love very much. And dear sir, I want you to know that he who has the son has everything I own. And so that servant that day became the possessor of everything owned by the artist. I want to tell you something. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything to look forward to except an eternity in hell. You don't have life on earth to look forward to that is abundant and complete because you will never be complete. But if you have Christ, you have everything God is. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The worth of Christ, God is completely in him. You are completed in him. And he is completely in charge of everything that is. I wonder if you have the Son. Father, I pray it's your Holy Spirit right now. We'll probe our hearts deeply with this truth the worth of Christ. We get so caught up sometimes in the work of Christ in our lives, we forget to come, contemplate, to meditate upon his worth, his value to us. And so, Father, we focus our attention tonight on his worth, and we proclaim to you, Lord Jesus, thou art worthy. And, Father, as we bow before you tonight, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring to this altar any person here tonight who has never received Christ by faith as Savior. Never turn from sin and turn to Jesus alone. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you stand to your feet quietly? Our praise singers are coming. In a few moments, they're going to lead us. We're going to sing together a hymn of invitation, your invitation to come to the Lord Jesus. If you've made a decision in uh, 
recent services and we've not introduced you, maybe you joined our church or maybe you were baptized, we've not introduced you to your church family, I'm going to ask you when we begin singing just to come and be seated over here where it says seating for new members. Find a counselor there and just tell them, you know, I haven't been introduced yet and I, I want to meet my new church family. And I believe that there are people here this evening to whom the Lord is speaking about becoming a part of this church family. I'd urge you to make that decision this evening. And I believe that there are people here this evening to whom the Lord is saying, you know, tonight is the night you need to receive my son as your Savior. You can have eternal life and you can have forgiveness of sin when you trust in Jesus who died on the cross for you, who's risen from the grave. You can have all of that when you receive Christ as your Savior. Would you make that decision tonight? It may be you need to come simply and kneel here at this altar and worship the Lord. Call upon Him in prayer. Deal with some issue in your life. I would encourage you to do that even now. Father, I pray, trusting that you'll bring to this altar those who will say yes to you this evening. Amen. Let's sing together. And as you're singing, some people are already coming. Would you come and just find these counselors? Look, I want to join this church or I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to kneel and pray. This is your invitation to come to the altar. Won't you come as we sing?